It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, as the BBC receives over 100,000 complaints over their coverage of Prince Philip's death, we ask how much is too much, is there a difference between linear and digital, and consider how high-profile royal deaths might be covered in future. Also on the show, is Ed Vasey the new face of Ofcom? Should the government have intervened in the Channel 4 boardroom? And what's next for BuzzFeed UK? Plus, Matt Kelly reveals his plans for the new, new European, and in the media quiz, the commissions from MIP TV receive my elevator pitch. It's all to come on this edition of the Media Podcast. Well, here we are, two weeks on from Ian Dale's wild speculations about Kay Burley, and we still don't know if she's returning to Sky News, so I'm glad we didn't keep recording just in case the news came in. Uh, Joining me today for more wild speculations, it is pilot TV podcaster and entertainment director at Heat Magazine, Mr. Boyd Hilton. Hello, Boyd. Hello, Ollie, and uh, contributing editor to Empire Magazine. I've got another job since I was last on. It's good to have a portfolio career. That's yeah. one of the media lessons we learn, you isn't it? You have to, in this day and age. Um, I see from Twitter as well that you are rightly excited about the return of This Time with Alan Partridge. I am not only excited, I am overwhelmed with joy at the prospect. And um, I can excuse Have you the, seen any yet? I have. I'm about to. Okay. But I can exclusively reveal that I have spoken to um, the creators for a forthcoming feature. That, that's the brothers, is it? The, right the brothers and Alan. And, and, sorry, and Steve. <laughs> Steve Coogan, not Alan. <laughs> Easily mistaken. Uh, all I three would of so them. much rather interview Alan Partridge in character than Steve Coogan. Yeah, well, I've done that as well. But, uh, but yeah. um, Steve Coogan and the Gibbons brothers, yeah. Yeah, very, very yeah. exciting. What, yeah. I, what can you tell us? Is it going to be... I'm guessing there's not much COVID in it. I'm guessing they went um, for light relief. Not much, no, no. It's... Um, it it picks up. There's a time jump from the last series. You know, do you remember how the last series ended with 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 um, Alan having to co-host um, the show with sidekick Simon because um, his colleague walked off in a huff because he'd been gossiping about her behind her back mm-hmm. and accusing her of being too ambitious. And this picks up with they've resolved that issue. Him and Jenny, Alan Partridge and co-host Jenny, have resolved the issue, and he's very happy. And he's now in his dream job hosting a one-show style magazine show, BBC One, but. Doubts and paranoia start to sink in. This is my. You won't, This is. I've kind of felt like I've taken over this podcast already, by, and sidelining as, 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 as a new Alan Partridge-based podcast. Well, normally I'd say that's too niche, but for this particular audience, I think we're all interested. Yeah, I think we're fine. <laughs> it is going to be uh, spectacular. I think. Yeah. 
Okay, wow. Having not seen it, spectacular. Yeah. Let's see what he really thinks when he has. Uh, also joining us today, writer and editor Elizabeth Carr Ellis, currently at Hello Magazine. And Lizzie, what a time to be working at Hello. This must have been the busiest week since Harry and Meghan, wasn't it? Yeah, and I put off this podcast because I said, oh, no, it's going to be Easter. I'll be far too busy then. And this week has just been the week from hell. Yeah, starting at uh, midday last Friday. Yeah, I, I, I must say, I just logged on to hellomagazine.com to see how it was all looking, and I got a server maintenance message. So, I mean, has it crashed? Has it been that popular? I'm not sure, but I wouldn't be at all surprised. What's the yeah. stuff people are looking at? when they? Because obviously, we're talking about, I should say, uh, the death of His Royal Highness. What is the thing people are looking at when they're coming internationally to Hello Magazine? What do they want? People just want news, really. They want to know what's going on. They're very concerned about Harry coming across and we've got the whole uniforms saga going on at the moment. So I think people are wanting to see it as a family. And that's why it's been so good to see all the family tributes this week. People are wanting to feel that they're not just a royal family, they're people they know and they're people they're family. So we've been doing a lot of family tributes. People who don't work in the area of you know covering the royals probably imagine that particularly the obit stuff must be in preparation for ages particularly a magazine like hello everything must have been prepped for years but what you're saying is the stuff people are actually clicking through is it's it's still the goss isn't it it's the stuff you can't prep that's it people want the new you know you have a rough idea about the duke of edinburgh's life he was 99 so most people knew what he'd been up to for the last you know 70 odd years um and so people want to be updated and they want to find out what's happening now and there's so much attraction around the younger members of the royal family that they're very keen to see him as a grandfather great-grandfather and see their reactions they want to see that royals are people just like us well we'll talk a bit more about that in just a sec uh, i should say as well also joining us on the panel we welcome back radio producer and tech expert Anne charles hello hello and um i see uh, from your social media that you've been hosting a session on clubhouse sharing good practice around obits this has obviously been a week when obit prep has been very much in focus uh, yes. for those who can't be asked to join clubhouse yet uh, what did we miss uh, so my, my friend corinne uh, and i host a, a weekly session on on clubhouse talking about radio stuff mobile journalism uh, yes well we had quite a few of us discussing the difference in the coverage between the uk australia and china and america because those are the people who came to join in and various people who were very pleased that their what we call the broadcaster's prayer uh, had been answered and that they weren't on duty. Uh, so that's the main thing, isn't it? Not be, these things are, are planned for and, and prepared, but with a live broadcast, anything can happen. So yeah, lots. I'm sure we're going to be discussing all the things that did and didn't happen, but lots of relief from certain people. <laughs> I suppose the difference, though, is that at least with the Duke of Edinburgh, it's kind of a bit easier to ad lib, isn't it? I mean, I used to think this when I was on LBC. I used to, the thing I was worried about was anything happening in Northern Ireland because being an Englishman, my education about Irish politics was so vague that I just thought I'd immediately trip up having to improvise. But with the Duke of Edinburgh, I feel like I could wank on for hours about the Duke <laughs> of Edinburgh. I mean, everyone knows everything, like Lizzie just said. Wank uh, on what? for hours? Is that the official? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one of the, one uh, way of getting listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Key bullet points on my CV. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, it's, it is easier, isn't it, to ad-lib around? I mean, well, what happens when obits go wrong? But with things like with things like Prince Philip, though, there are there are set procedures. There are certain individuals for whom there are set procedures that most broadcasters will follow, and Prince Philip, the Queen, people like that have those. So you have got a, a more prescribed formula of how the announcement is made. Yes. Um, 
things that have gone wrong in the past have been having an obit rehearsal and then people not realising it's a rehearsal. That one famously happened a few years ago. Um, Or I think the one, I shan't name the broadcaster, but one of the broadcasters came out of the announcement of the death of Prince Philip and immediately played Adele, hello from the other side, which was possibly (laughs) not... I don't think their audience would have noticed or been offended, but... Yeah, it wouldn't have taken much thinking that one, would it? Yeah, so a bit of planning, probably quite important. Incidentally, what kind of crowd are you getting on Clubhouse for that sort of discussion? Because people talk about this as, you know, the great white hope. I mean, how many people were tuning in live? Well, so our our Clubhouse group, it's sort of, it's quite niche. Um, It tends to be, it's quite a nice discussion, sort of between 10 and 20 people. Last week, we didn't have quite as many because we've had to shift the time around because Australian time zone change. Um, But yeah, there's a good group of us who kind of meet every week and we're starting to get more people come along. And um, yeah. It's sort of like an open source book club, really. It's well. It's just it's a just a date in the diary for everyone to get together and exchange tips and ideas. Like the mobile journalism community is pretty good at sharing ideas and likes to get together, and so does the radio tech community. So we just provide a space, and we tend to do a topic each week. And then it like like a radio show, you might start off with a topic, and then it veers off into what people actually want to talk about. But it's yeah. just good to host that space. It's just interesting to see how it's all developing. It all starts very friendly, doesn't it? It's like Twitter. You'll all be trolling each other in 10 years' time. Uh, let's talk about uh, the coverage of the Duke of Edinburgh's death then. So he was the Queen's consort. He'd served the country for over 60 years. So this was always going to be a huge story. Uh, but TV audience figures dropped massively once the coverage was into its second day. And the BBC received so many complaints, it opened a dedicated complaints form on its website of people complaining there was too much. Uh, Boyd, what did you think? Did the BBC get this wrong? I thought it was a bit much, to be honest. Um, I think, first of all, let's acknowledge the fact that in this day and age, I mean, you did, you don't, you know, you, there are more than four channels to watch. You know, if you wanted to avoid excessive discussion of Prince Philip and his life um, and his death, then you you easily could. I mean, you know, people have made this point on, on social media. So a lot of people were complaining about it immediately on social media. A lot of people. Um, we're saying it's all you have to commemorate this um, historical figure for all the reasons you just mentioned Um, and even though I do think coverage was excessive equally you know you could switch over channel four for example only only provided a few hours of coverage and then reverted to its normal schedule quite rightly so and won the day and won the day yeah a big hit 4.2 million viewers yeah watch Gogglebox which is always a huge hit for channel four anyway but I do feel it felt excessive particularly for example BBC four you know, had to put this slide up saying, I'm going to, I'll, I'll quote the, um, I took a picture of it. Programs on BBC Four have been suspended. Please switch to BBC One for a major news report. Now, to me, yeah. that like That's implies like nuclear war, yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah. Um, and with, you know, with the kind of grey screen. BBC Two showed pretty much the same coverage as BBC One. ITV devoted and then carried on the next morning as well. Most of those channels, most of those main channels, if you like. And I just feel it just felt like this 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 decision, this amount of coverage, the decision to have that amount of coverage must have been made years ago, as you know, in the same way that, as you say, obituaries are planned and written years in advance and obviously updated to 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 include new most recent information. But this just felt like an arcane procedure, you know, that the BBC and ITV felt they had to have wall to wall coverage of it. And really, there's only a limited amount you can say, even to a, about a man who 
it was 99 and was the Queen's consort, you know, the narrative of him being a bit dodgy and a bit racist, maybe, you know, that had to be addressed. And it was quite interesting slash amusing to see how that was addressed on the different channels. I wish it was on CNN. That was, that, that, I thought that was fascinating. But in general, it felt like something from another era to me. And I wonder whether, I think when the Queen passes away, it's going to be, I mean, this is going to be as nothing to that, is it? I mean, that's going to be extraordinary. And I just wonder whether at some point, you know, the DG of the BBC particularly needs to have a discussion about coverage of this this kind of thing with the royal family, with their representatives and go, look, is it, are you really actually, are you alienating people? Because I think that's the problem. If, you know, yeah. because people just get sick and tired of excessive pointless coverage for the sake of it. And surely, you know, a mature discussion with the BBC, broadcasters, ITV, the public service broadcasters and the royal family and their representatives about the way forward from this, I think, is would be a good idea. Yeah, I mean, it is different, isn't it, Lizzie, when the Queen dies? Um, I feel like, just instinctively, that's going to be the moment that the nation will want to come together and discuss. This was so expected. You know, he'd been in the hospital three weeks before. It, it's kind of hard to imagine there was anyone even the most fervent kind of fan of the royals that wanted three days of continuous coverage i disagree i think there were a lot of people who would have been wanting to watch it i mean i was listening to the radio as well i had the news on because i needed to watch what was going on so for journalists it's always great when the news coverage is that good you know there was a lot of radio people people were actually crying up calling up and crying because they were so upset that Prince Philip had died. There is a huge demand for royal, you know, the royal family still get a lot of support. They have like two thirds of the country still want a royal family to go on. I think it is very much of an old age, but then so was Prince Philip. And I think we have to show that sort of respect to the era that they were and to the people of his era who want that from their royal family. If you remember, the BBC yeah. got a whole load of stick when it cut short the Queen Mother's um, coverage. You know, so they were in a hard place. Too much, too little. They're always going to get criticism for it, whatever. And I think sometimes you've just got to play it out for the royal fans. But when does respect become propaganda, Anne? I suppose that's the point, isn't it? You know, I was watching it, and I'm not a Republican. Like, I'm someone who quite likes the royal family in the same kind of bland way that lots of people quite like. I don't have any problem with them. I wouldn't create them as an institution, but I rather like them. If I ever got to meet the Queen, that would be exciting. But I was watching it and thinking, this just feels like an authoritarian regime, the tone of this. Like... You know, the BBC logo is is announcing the news at 10 instead of the theme tune. There is literally no other news or the acknowledgement that any other news exists. This is, and that's just one program on BBC One. It was effectively six hours long. And by the end of it, I just I f- I felt I'd been beaten over the head with it rather than sort of watching something I wanted to find out about. Yeah, I mean, I th- it is really hard to get that balance. And also, it's not just the BBC that's doing this. I mean, ITV was doing, every network was doing stuff. ITV certainly had an evening of programmes about Prince Philip, as well as the BBC. I think some of it is possibly plans that have been based for a long time. And because of the generational aspect, no one is quite brave enough to change them. And I think you're also right about that. what you don't want is actually for there to be an underreaction when the Queen goes, because I think that will be such an end of an era that we're not quite prepared for it. And I really think that the big discussions about changing the protocols can't really happen until then. It's I suppose you, you've you've got as a nation to decide when your key moments are going to be that you do things different and you take part in a national ritual. So I suppose deaths of 
a serving prime minister or the queen are are kind of points in history that people are going to want to mark. I do think some of it was probably based around because he the announcement was at lunchtime and most people were still in lockdown at that point or you know not kind of going to work as normal. You would have heard the news, turned on the telly, listened to the radio, got the update. And then maybe in the evening, there might have been a longer program that you wanted to see. But it wasn't like people had been at work all day and were then catching up. And for it to be a whole evening of programs, I did wonder if perhaps they just felt that they'd made the programs. So they were going to, they were going to broadcast them no matter what. And yeah, They had some good contributors, to yeah. be fair. And they had Prince Charles. Um, I do wonder whether that context of the pandemic is important as well, Boyd. You know, because th- th- these exact plans were coronavirus not happening at the same time might have felt more appropriate. This might have been more of a national moment where everyone felt the same thing. But I, I just wondered watching it, there was almost an element of uh, being disrespectful to everyone else that's died from something else. You know, so many deaths have happened, mental health problems are skyrocketing, people are locked indoors. And so one very, very old man's death in that context felt overblown. Yeah, I mean, I've, I would say just, just to be clear, I don't blame the BBC for it, you know, and and, and the other public, you know, I I, I think I, I think that I I agree that they were, I agree that they're in, in between a rock and a hard place and all of that. I think that's absolutely right. You know, they can't win. I mean, they can't, and the fact that there was was the the form to fill in if you if you were annoyed by the over the uh, the 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 um the amount of coverage and then they took it when people were complaining about <laughs> that the form existed and all of that, it became a bit ridiculous. I would just say that. I think the I think the pandemic. I mean, I don't think it affected it that much, but I think it did. I think the fact that one ninety-nine-year-old man's death meant that a channel closed down for the evening. Just to harp on about that BBC Four thing again, and that two BBC, both BBC channels, felt they had to have coverage for effectively days on end as a symbolic gesture. Because that's a symbolic gesture. That is not. We're not saying fans of the royal family had plenty of coverage to choose from, right? I mean, we're saying we are not going to provide a linear alternative. To to, to make the decision that a channel will shut down in a weird bit of symbolism, I think that's that's what what I I found extraordinary. And and what really are they saying to show Top of the Pops from 1982 at 10 o'clock on BBC4 would have showed disrespect, really? I mean, that kind of thinking I find excruciating frankly but then well i see i've i was listening to uh i was in the car on a sunday when i happened to know that elaine page is normally on because i'm a fan of my broadway and west end musicals turned on radio too and there elaine page on sunday wasn't she'd been taken off air and instead we had nikki chapman doing a very good job of being warm and relatable and friendly but basically saying text me about your dead granddad and that was essentially what it was for three hours and Elizabeth, that kind of ties into what you were saying about people feeling that intimate connection with the royal family, that that particular audience, they obviously felt you couldn't play any show tune. It didn't matter if you chose a ballad. It didn't matter if you asked Elaine Page to play it straight. You couldn't play any show tune that was important, that that was relevant. It had to be soft ballads and a reassuring person connecting this story to your personal family story. That's what people wanted to hear. I'm always happy when show tunes are off the radio, to be honest. I think you've missed the point. This is not just a 99-year-old man. This is not just any old man. This is a man who gave almost his entire life to service of the UK. He fought in the Second World War. So you have a lot of people who would have looked at him and thought about their own fathers or their own great-grandfathers, great-grandfathers, who had also done the same thing. He then went on to serve 
Britain for, you know, from the coronation until he was 94, 95, I think, when he finally retired. He gave a good innings. This is not just, you know, Joe Bloggs next door who retired when he was 65. He gave a long, long service. And I think a lot of people did want to pay respect to that. And a lot of people admired it and wanted to see that through on TV. But no one's saying don't have that reflect that absolutely everything you said Elizabeth I, I, of course but how does that but when that manifests itself as a net as a channel shutting down for the for, you know how I don't I don't see the sense of that I don't, I don't see the sense of of every channel having to carry on covering it for for, for days on end you know? but it's not it's not just him as a man it is what he represents and it's what the queen represents is that they are the crown they are not just people they are representations of the crown they are representations of the country so that is why they have so much. And is that the right thing then, Anne, to solicit from your audience on a phone-in-based radio station or even Radio 2 where you're taking dedications, to solicit from your audience those kind of personal responses about their own family? You're saying to people, you're sort of explicitly saying, this is the contract that we have with the royal family. They are our family. And when one of them passes on, we think about our own family. So call us and, and tell us about your personal family issues. I think that's very true. I mean, for example, so my, my grandma um, is 89 and in a slight reversal of how things should be, she found out with an uh, with an alert flashed up on her iPad <laughs> and I found out by listening to the radio. Um, and we were comparing <laughs> notes. But um, my, my granddad uh, has died now, but she and granddad were married for over 65 years. And, you know, you sort of, so immediately that, you know, so she was obviously feeling that kind of triggered stuff for her around thinking around the Queen losing a partner of over 70 years marriage. There aren't really that many people in the country who have been married for that long. And so there is a link immediately that someone like my grandma has with the Queen, with what's going on. And so it's going to be, I mean, what more can you do? Because I think another part of this is there's a slight lack of news element, isn't there? Um, It felt, without sounding horrible, like as things went on over the weekend, the headline was really 99-year-old man still dead. There's not much moving on the story. And I think perhaps that can be part of the planning for obits because if um, it's slightly different when you've got someone like Prince Philip who seemed to have had a peaceful death at home versus when we had Princess Diana or if you know Prince William died in the next week or two, that would be a different thing because it would be an unexpected circumstance. And I suppose that's probably coming into the, the tone of it and the coverage because uh, there, there's not much to update and everyone starts focusing on things like what people are going to wear to the funeral and stuff like that because there's not really much more to talk about to move the story on and I suppose that is part of it as well. Final thing on this the programming that should have been on BBC4 Boyd that you've referenced a few times was the women's football yeah. and it didn't get completely cancelled it was screened but on iPlayer yeah. and that seems to me to be a fascinating decision. Is this going to be the last time that big organisations like the BBC make this distinction between their linear output and their digital outputs, it's somehow not disrespectful to show women's football on iPlayer, but it would have been on digital TV. I mean, that just seems like a very odd distinction. Yeah, it was an odd distinction. I think, um, I mean, all I'd say is I think, I think it was a shame to not go show that match. And, you know, I don't, and, and, it went. It it went on. You know, the the match went ahead. Not to show it was. And it, although you could see on iPlay, a lot of people, 
you know, for various reasons, don't have access necessarily to iPlayer at that moment in time. You know, it is easier. There's a difference between watching broadcast TV still. You know, people forget, but not everyone has access to, you know, high-speed broadband, etc. all those things. For all those reasons, I think the BBC needs to remember that, you know, I think it can make the decision rather too easily sometimes to go, oh, we'll put it on iPlayer or we'll put it on, you know, BBC Sounds for audio and radio stuff. But there's still millions of people out there who don't have access to those those elements of the BBC and for whom... In quotes, linear the normal linear live channels are still how they watch TV by and large. So, I think if they, if they're going to assume that that's a way out of this these kind of decisions, I, I don't think they should. You know, I really don't. And um, oh my god, worse even more than that, the, the amount of time it took for them to find a slot for the MasterChef final was extraordinary. I mean, day in, day out, I had people asking me, when is the MasterChef final going to be on? And day in, day out, the BBC couldn't, just wasn't deciding. And eventually they showed it on the Thursday night, uh, sorry, the Wednesday night. Um, uh, uh, but it was it was amazing how long they took to, to, to work out how to put that. And that's a huge show, you know, with huge... I just think, I just think the assumption that everyone thinks, you know, you need to symbolically do what the what what the BBC did in the end is is misguided. I mean in conclusion Lizzie would you at least acknowledge that it's gone on a long time? You know because I think that there everything you've said absolutely makes sense on the day of the death. And as Boyd said I can choose choose to tune to channel 4 if I want to and really what was I expecting from the state broadcaster on the news at 10. But by day 4 and 5 when they're all still wearing black is it overkill or not? Oh no definitely not. No, you need to have a, you know, even just for your own family, you get a week's uh, compassion leave. So you need to have that time of respect, definitely. As I said, it's the crown. It's not just a man. OK, we will move on to the rest of the week's media news after this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Let's uh, talk about regulation now, because Ofcom are considering ex-culture minister Ed Vasey as their new chair, according to Bloomberg. Uh, Anne, your thoughts? 
Well, I I don't know Ed Vasey. Um, I haven't worked with him, but I know from colleagues that he was very well respected when he was in post and certainly seemed to understand broadcasting, understand media and, you know, vaguely understand <laughs> television radio exists. So it wouldn't be, it doesn't seem unreasonable. Um, I suppose it's another white bloke doing something, isn't it? But it, it, yeah, at least someone with some relevant background experience. So, but who knows? Who knows who that actually choose? And presumably, Boyd, he would be your preference over Paul Dacre. Oh God, yeah. but... I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? It's like I feel like they've set it up so that because it was kind of leaked that Paul Dacre um, was up for the job, um, an extraordinary candidate, really, considering his visceral hatred for the BBC for the last you know, few decades that manifested itself in the Daily Mail pretty much day in, day out when he was when he was actual hands-on editor. Um, so for him to be uh, uh, apparently the favourite has, has has been an unbelievable uh, idea. So I think now, yeah, Ed Vader feels like the, the, the acceptable face of the right-wing, you know, the, the right-wing appointment, yeah, yeah, of this job. And I, 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 it seems to make sense to me that he would eventually get it. I, I think I met him in the Edinburgh TV Festival Perhaps a couple of times. It seems well, like that's the definition, isn't it? Exactly. Of someone with incredible charisma. I think yeah. I met them. I think I met him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he seems very decent and nice. He seems like a wet Tory, doesn't he? Rather than a kind of, you know, rather than a kind of right wing um, kind of figure. So yeah, but old white guy, of course, a white Tory. But anyone but Dacre, surely anyone. But my question is, I don't know, and, and this is, I, I, you know, I was kind of looking into it. I don't know the extent to which this position, you know, how much exact influence do you have? when you're in charge of Ofcom, because Ofcom, the decisions that it makes, it's not just the person, that figurehead, who makes the actual decisions, is it? Of the nitty gritty of, you know, has this channel done something wrong that needs to be censured or they need to apologise for, etc. Um, so is it, I don't know, is it, but I, I, I'd imagine if Paul Dacre, I just had this image of Paul Dacre taking over and wanting to somehow, you know, ruin the BBC from that position. And that may be a completely ludicrous concept because in actual fact, they don't have that much power at all, possibly, as, as head of Ofcom. I, I think it's chair of the board rather than chief executive. So, And what does that mean, a general strategy? Right. Yeah, I think it's general strategy in making sure Ofcom's performing its role rather than who should we hire to for this department and, you know, the day to day operational stuff. But regardless, Lizzie, of how much power any individual has within Ofcom, the role of Ofcom itself, and you'd be a voice, wouldn't you, being quoted in the media on these subjects, now extends to regulating harmful and illegal speech online, combating the rise of fake news, ensuring fair placement for the public service broadcasters. Uh, in an increasingly competitive marketplace. It's a massive brief, actually. I kind of wonder who would be qualified to speak on all of those topics. Doing my bit, because I'm, I'm like Anne, I don't know much about Ed Vasey either. Um, but, you know, having a read up about him, that all seems to be things that he's been talking about over the last few years. He's been speaking about the public broadcasters, working with the regulators, um holding social media to account for online abuse. So he does sound as if he could be interested in the job, as in not just, oh, yes, that's a nice little pay package, please. It sounds like he could be someone who wants to make a difference. Well, I mean, as we know from the news around David Cameron this week, the pay packets that someone like Ed Vasey could get elsewhere will be substantially higher, won't they? So you'd only take this Ofcom job if you really wanted it. You'd have to give up every other interest. This is a man who was uh, pulled up for charging eight pence for a car journey. So I think he's... Money's important, obviously, so he's he must be into it if he's not going to go for the big bucks. Well, in perhaps 
related news. Uh, the government has vetoed the reappointment of Uzma Hassan and Fru Hazlitt to Channel 4's board of directors. Uh, so, Anne, the government wants a Tory lord at Ofcom, but Ofcom supports the reappointment of these two women at Channel 4, which the government doesn't. Yeah, so this one this one just seems a little bit more worrying because I think they've both been on the board before and this was a reappointment. It is a reappointment, so, usually uncontroversial, yes. Yeah, and so there's no suggestion that there's any, any problem with anything that they've done and yet mysteriously you're getting rid of two women, one of whom is a woman of colour, and then going, oh, we haven't actually decided who else we want. Um, we haven't got any other option, but presumably they want to put someone in who's um, a bit more... Uh, conservative based I don't know it does this one yeah it seems a little bit uh, I'm not into the, all the details of how the channel 4 board works and the politics of it all but this one does seem much more it has the appearance of much more of a political meddling and interference and something that we should probably be more worried about um, than the other one but the optics are something Lizzie that the conservative party don't really want to back either I mean part of channel 4's remit is to improve diversity in the media you know, even the Conservative Party would support that concept, but they've left a board with eight remaining non-executive board members, seven of whom are white men. Yeah, and that just sounds very much like the media today full stop, doesn't it? I mean, this is the way it goes. You know, get rid of the women and just replace them with more men. That's how it goes. It's interesting because Faisy did um, pull up. He went to see Lenny Henry in some theatre show and he was amazed by how many how different the audience was to his normal theatre goings. So if he was to take over the role, that might be something he looks at. But I won't be holding my breath, to be honest. You know, this is status quo always comes back. Well, I mean, to be fair, we don't know that they're going to be replaced by men. They might be replaced by exactly the same demographic, might not they? Two women, one of colour, just different women. We don't know yet. Different tokens, yes. Boyd, The Guardian reported that the reason given for the surprise decision not to renew these two women's terms in office was the need to fill a finance skills gap on the board of directors. Yeah. Uh, and the suggestion being, therefore, that this could be the potential privatisation of Channel 4, which we've discussed on this show for the last eight years. Uh, <laughs> if it happens, how would you rate Channel 4's prospects at the moment? How would you mark their card? I think they're doing pretty well from what I hear. Um, I always think Channel 4 is fairly miraculous in the, in being a public service broadcaster that has a very specific remit to... to, to um, you know, to deal with issues like um, representation of minorities and um, et cetera, which it's done throughout its history pretty well. Um, and yet it's also commercially successful, you know, um, has very, you know, has Gogglebox, you mentioned, um, you know, it, it, Bake Off, remember when it when it acquired Bake Off? That was a big controversy and people thought it was a bit mad that um, they'd nicked it, supposedly, from the BBC. But actually it's a, it's a massive, massive show. Um, gets huge ratings for them, and and, and they they keep coming up with kind of new lifestyle-y type strands, which are which are really successful and popular. So I think they're doing pretty well. I think they probably could be privatized and 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 exist and function quite well. I happen to think that the current, you know, I I don't know. I, I think that I think that would be a political and ideological thing to do. Um, if 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 the government decides, the Tory government decides to do that, along with this decision that started this discussion, which is clearly, you know, I call complete bullshit on the whole idea. They have to get a person with finance expertise. There isn't that. General Ford wouldn't be able to find someone with the expertise to help them with the privatisation process if that indeed is what ends up them being happening. I think the whole thing is ridiculous, um, and I think they should leave Channel Four alone. 
and they shouldn't have interfered. And it got to the point when it gets to the point where Riz Ahmed, you know, national hero, Oscar nominee, BAFTA winner, um, tweeted about this, saying it was very worrying. Government taking control of independent media appointments and vetoing two women of colour from the Channel 4 board. When Riz Ahmed is annoyed about something, you've got to pay attention. That's all I say. <laughs> but I suppose it is technically the government's business, isn't it, Anne? It's not, I mean, it's sort of independent, but I mean, it is uh, state-owned privately run that's the point of channel fours i mean the government is allowed to get involved it just historically hasn't yeah but i think there's i mean i think one of the board members that was reappointed was chris holmes who is who's got conservative links so it, it is worrying right when if traditionally people haven't been that involved and suddenly it feels a little bit like trump and the supreme court where you're starting to try and get all of your people in and you're it's not even like there was a vacancy. I'm sure on a board you can add an extra space if you need someone with particular finance skills. I don't think that would be difficult. Um, it's not a good look, is it? There used to be kind of a general agreement about how these things were done and that there was a sense of fair play and righteousness in things. And to suddenly go, we're going to get rid of two people and we're going to fill the board with people that we want is is a potential red flag. Yeah, well, Fru Hazlitt and Uzma Hassan are both more than welcome to join the Media Podcast Board. Uh, there are spaces available. Um, let's talk about print now. And a friend of the show, Matt Kelly, uh, has been discussing his vision for the new European, the paper he established and now owns with fellow investors. Uh, he says it won't be for the metropolitan elite. Uh, Lizzie, what else has he been saying? They are hoping to increase their sales through subscriptions rather than daily buys or weekly buys. And that they're hoping to get back to at least the 20k sales that they had pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic was also in the height of Brexit. So how successful that might be now that the whole European map has changed, I'm not too sure. He also said that you can run a good weekly periodical, because that's how he sees them, even though they're on the newspaper shelves, with 10 staff. Yeah. That's... What, what, what do you think of that? They only have five staff at the moment including him and his partner, Governor O'Reilly. So I... But you wouldn't quite at the moment put them in the same breath as the new statesman and the economist and the week and the spectator, would you? Nowhere near that. Um, and it's very, very worrying that he thinks you could run a quality publication on just 10 staff. I mean, it's tough enough in the journalism world now with the amount of cuts, and I don't know a single newspaper that's just running on 10 staff. So... I'm very intrigued as to what sort of quality he thinks he will be able to put out with that. He also says uh, that they're going to continue to work remotely, Boyd, not have an office. And that's quite interesting. You've spent your career in magazines. How would you feel if you never again had a base to return to well i have to say you can if anything if anything has been proven by um this period that we've been in that you can absolutely put a magazine or newspaper together with no one working in office i mean that's 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 completely the case um the staffing i think is interesting i just think i think you know that maybe include permanent full-time members of staff i think you know it's 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 i think they'd have loads of contributions from from freelance writers particularly you know so if it ends up being written by contributors and being edited and sub-edited, etc., by that staff of ten or whatever it is, then then I think it probably actually could is is doable. I have to be honest. Um, I think it is. I think it's interesting because I think it's an example of a niche product, isn't it? That is doing okay, breaking even apparently, um, and still going. I think probably when it launched, probably a lot of people thought, "What's you know who's who the hell's going to buy this? Is it is it really viable?" But I think if you find a have a niche print product that has appeals to a certain group of people 
um, you know, hardcore remainers in this in this case, um, seemingly, then fair enough. I think it's quite. I think it's good. I think it's good news that the that the more publications that succeed in good old fashioned print, the better in my book. But is it success, Anne, to be breaking even? I mean, maybe it is in such a volatile market, or is it just you know a hobby? Well, I think good on them because they were part of Archon and then they've kind of come out of that and, and are setting up on their own. They've had a big injection of cash. They're looking to increase their staff by 100 percent, um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're also they're also, I mean, Archon's based uh, in Norwich. So um, spreading their work around the country, you know, it'd be nice if it was kept around here. But yeah, having a remote working base seems to make sense. And their figures, they were breaking even, but they've had this cash injection. And now they're looking to um, hopefully make a bit more than that. Um, And I think they've just got a marketing issue. I mean, I, I know about them. I hardly ever see them on the stands. I never see an article written by them being shared on social. Um, I did have a look. They've got a little shop but uh, where they sell um, Remainer kind of merchandise, but that's still linked to Archant. So I don't know if they just missed that in the deal about who was having that. But if you, <laughs> if you want to buy a, a, a remainer uh, face mask, then perhaps you're still giving money to Archant who've had financial issues of their own. Um, they've managed to get an investment from more people so there are obviously some backers out there who think that they've got a product that's worth risking several thousands of pounds each if you do the sums on the back of an envelope each of those investors must have put in at least fifty-five thousand pounds on average so you know for most of us that's that's a, an amount of money that would really <laughs> hurt to lose yeah i'm not sure it's such a huge dent in mark thompson's salary from the new york times but you're right it's still a punt isn't it but it's not it's still it's still not you know it's not 50p is it's it not it's, so that yeah. he must he must have some feeling that it's worth a go and there's got a good team behind it so good on them i mean i suppose to go back to the point we were discussing lizzie the staff that he's not employing and he says this in the article with the press gazette really are the kind of deputy political commentator type roles uh, so what he's saying is he'll use high-profile freelancers to write articles, you know, Alistair Campbell, people like that, to get traction. Uh, and then the staff will do the rest um, and uh, and commission the work. But do you think you miss something by not having representatives? I mean, I'm just thinking even about your kind of, you know, your, your pundits who pop up on paper reviews. If you don't have someone with personality who represents your brand, you're missing marketing opportunities. Yeah, I think everybody likes to have their the person who they read you know you have a a special journalist who speaks to you and you go to them and that's one of the reasons why you buy something is because somebody you know writes for them for example I love James Kirkup's work and I've read him everywhere he goes I think he's a great writer the same as I would do with say Padley Freeman was to leave the Guardian I would continue reading her so I do think you run a big risk of not having consistency in your voice and not having that one person who is the focus that you know what they're going to say and they will continue to surprise you and make you think. Whereas if you have different voices all the time, you're never going to get that. Okay, uh, let's talk about digital media now. And also reported in the Press Gazette this week, BuzzFeed has reported their revenue is down 16% from their non-US editions. And that, quote, the effective management of cash and costs is key to sustaining its international operations. Uh, well, no shit. But Anne, <laughs> is that something you think that they can achieve? Or are they still so big? I mean, it seems they're trying to stem a £3.6 million loss around the world outside of the US and Japan, which is a separate business. 
without cutting so much that they'll never make a profit. It's a very delicate balance for them. I don't understand the how these kind of businesses work at all. It seems to be they're they're back to kind of the lost levels from the graph I saw of 2016, but they've made a loss of several million every year. And I I understand that sometimes you have a business where you make a plan that you're going to make a loss in the first few years and you have a clear target for how you're going to make your profit. But I re- I just I'm not in the world where you're constantly making millions and millions of losses for year after year after year, and then you're still managing to keep going. I, yeah, it's I don't get it. I mean, BuzzFeed UK's main source of revenue is the sale of social content advertising to brands. So I suppose it's fair enough, Boyd, isn't it, to have anticipated that that would be down during the pandemic and to hope that that's going to bounce back. Do you think it might? I guess it could bounce back. Yeah, it definitely would have been affected by the pandemic. So you'd hope that it could bounce back. But um, I just think it is depressing that, you know, BuzzFeed acquired HuffPost, didn't it, in in February, immediately announced loads of job cuts. I mean, you know, I think it's that... I I just feel for the journalists and the, the people who work for these companies who, I don't know, kind of make these... Who, who who are constantly living on the edge of kind of of doubt and uncertainty because of, seemingly because of the way they're run, um, as Anne was saying, and so it, I find it yeah it is it's very depressing really. But I hope that I mean I hope to God they bounce back yeah with that with that if that is their if that is what's driving their um, success at least in the in the UK at least. I mean to put both these stories together, Lizzie, it, it does kind of seem like the New European have got the right idea in terms of moving towards subscription. That appears to be the model that's working at the moment, and BuzzFeed's model of working with brands appears not to be working to to actually fund journalism. Yeah, I mean if you have somebody who's willing to pay out of their own pocket rather than out of your company's pocket, that's more of a guaranteed stream really, because brands will always look at the P&L, they're going to look at what's best for them rather than what's interesting and what they're into. Um, but really, who reads BuzzFeed anymore? BuzzFeed just seems to have lost its way so much over the years that I just think, ah, what's going on? They had some really good journalists. You know, in this country, the UK um, office had some great, great expert journalists on in, in, in my field, yeah, in showbiz and TV mm-hmm. writing, all that. Yeah, but they, and they got rid of them. And it was Exactly. Really that's all yeah. in the past. They had some great journalists. BuzzFeed News was great. Yeah, they were doing yeah, fantastic yeah. work. And now it's just back to his 10 pictures of dogs and stuff like mm. that. It's... I wonder also whether, you know, Substack, you know, that model of... Um, of um, Personal subscription newsletters. Yeah. Yeah. Is going to affect all of this, all of this stuff. It, it must be, it must be a, a factor because I know that it seems to be, you know, Substack seems to be drawing lots of really famous, successful journalists to its to its um, platform, and people are making huge amounts of money. Some of those journalists, you know, they're, they're paying money just to get them, to, like paying advances to them, you know, to to if they're kind of in, in quote star journalists in all kinds of areas, lifestyle, news, politics, etc. That seems to be a big very interesting development that that could well challenge these kinds of, particularly the in the online news slash journalism world. Yeah, and in that world, Anne, you don't have any overheads apart from your own rent or your own mortgage, do you? So, you know, if, you know what what is a, a tremendous amount of money to be paid for writing your own email newsletter? You know, eighty grand a year, let's say, if you're really successful, that's great for you. It wouldn't really be that big a deal for the Times. So, you know, if everyone goes off and does their own newsletter, that does decimate the model for the newspapers, doesn't it? Is that collision as well of kind of um, digital first model versus traditional model, and them trying to transition the infrastructure and 
and processes because yeah there's a lot of money to be made on an individual level if people know how to market online because you you can be the world leader at your strange niche for whatever the newsletter is that you've got that no one else is writing but yeah interesting interesting times would you pay Elizabeth sorry Elizabeth I looked ask you would you pay for Hadley Freeman's newsletter if she joined Substack and left the Guardian I pay for Suzanne Moore so yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're people who I don't necessarily agree with, but I really admire their writing. Mm, same, I bought, yeah. Hadley's, I bought Hadley's book, so why wouldn't I pay for a newsletter? Yeah, I'm the same. I absolutely mm. agree. Yeah, I think Suzanne was brilliant. I'm, I'm, yeah. You know, um, even I, whether I agree or not with her stuff, but she's a fantastic writer. Worth, worth pointing out at this point that if you want to donate to the Media Podcast, there is a button on our website at themediapodcast.com. Uh, finally, Radio Now and um, organisers of the Audio and Radio Emergency Fund are closing that initiative at the end of its current funding round. Um, and has this been a success story? And is it the right time for it to end? Uh, yes. So they're, they're, they're closing the Audio and Radio Emergency Fund, but the underlying Radio Benevolent Fund will still exist. Um, they've had, a, thankfully, good news, they've had a sort of a slowdown of applications because the need at the start of the pandemic was a lot greater. And so, yeah, I think this is wonderful. The industry came together, Audio UK, the Radio Academy joined forces, and then they had donations from the BBC and Audible and Folder Media and various other organisations uh, including precisely zero pounds from any commercial radio network. Um, and then lots and lots and lots, £20,000 worth of individual donations from people within the industry who donated a, a day's pay or half a day's pay to support wow, their colleagues. So most of the most of the grants have been, I think the maximum grant is £1,000. Most of the grants have been nearer 500 but, you know, enough to just help someone buy a piece of equipment or get through, I don't know, their rent or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, really good example of the industry pulling together at a time of need. And there will be some kind of funding in the future. It just won't have the banner of the emergency fund because hopefully the pandemic's impact will be less acute. Yeah, fingers crossed. It's back to the economics of it, though, isn't it, Boyd, in a way? You know, they've given out over £77,000. As Anne has just outlined, that's made a huge difference in audio because audio is cheap. I mean, that wouldn't fund one episode of a Channel 5 TV programme, would it? Yeah, true. I, I think it's just a reminder as well that everyone, you know, in every um, line of work, but particularly freelancers, you know, I think a lot of this money for, has gone to radio freelancers, who, you know, who's... who's jobs would suddenly have been cut, been cut short or his opportunities it was just various jobs that they would have been given in normal circumstances traveling around covering events or whatever for radio you know would have been affected and that's the that's the i still think those people were forgotten by the government if i can make that political point as well you know it's it, freelancers have been so on the wrong end of this whole period you know um, or at least fell between two stools yeah but but so many fell between two stools and you, you know the fact that they're government didn't really ever still hasn't really dealt with that i find it incredible this mm. which is why these funds have to be you know have to be um invented and thankfully they were thankfully they, they have you know they've helped people okay i will let you go shortly i promise because lizzie who knows what's been happening with prince philip <laughs> since we've been recording but first we have the very serious business of the media quiz oh boy <laughs> this week it is entitled the elevator I'm going to give you all three elevator pitches, which did the business at this week's MIP TV. Uh, you just have to correctly identify the commission. Uh, it's best of three, and you buzz in with your name if you know the answer. So, Anne, you will say... Anne. Lizzie, you will say... Lizzie. And Boyd, you will say... Boyd. Okay, here's pitch number one. It's footballer turned model meets Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. But what's the show? Uh, uh, David Boyd. Boyd. David Beckham's um, 
squad, save our squad, which is very a, good. Yeah, he um, he's going to help out. Um, it's I, I genuinely this is a genuinely a good thing, by the way. He's going to help out um, grassroots level football teams, um, which is another thing that's been forgotten about because you know Premier League. Anyway, I'll go on about it. But yeah, it's a really good thing for him to be doing. Well done, David Beckham. <laughs> and for Disney Plus. Disney Plus. For Disney so bringing, Plus, of all people. Bringing yeah. British grassroots it works, football to an international audience. Absolutely. It works all around. Disney Plus gets a, a megastar and we get, to, we get an, a, 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 I think, a useful show about grassroots football. Is it but the Lizzie, Ramsey's kitchen so, nightmare of, of children's football? Is that the kind of pitch? <laughs> Does he I don't go think, in I don't and think say, David, you're playing terribly? <laughs> David's not going to swear and be horrible like Gordon. No. I don't think you will. He's well, very it, good on TV, actually. You know, he's great. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm really looking forward to it. it. Hold on, just hold the phone a minute. <laughs> I mean, he might be great on TV, being interviewed and being self-deprecating and sort of, you know, surprising little quips. Is he a good TV host? Yeah, he did that show where he went to was it the Amazon? Yeah, he went off on a bike. It was really yeah. interesting, and I love David Beckham. I once stood for hours in a Sam Taylor Woods David just watching him sleep. You know. I'm a big fan, but I was really surprised just how good he was. Right. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll reserve judgment, even though I clearly haven't. Uh, here's elevator pitch number two. It's House meets Poirot. Buzz with your name when you know the answer. Boyd, yeah. It's, Boyd. Sorry. <laughs> it's, um, this is Hugh Laurie, isn't it? It's Hugh Laurie. Yes. He's yes. writing <laughs> a, um, uh, an Agatha Christie adaptation. I've forgotten the name of the book. He's writing an Agatha Christie adaptation um, for Britbox. I think Correct. Brit For a bonus box. point, would anyone like to name the book? Why didn't they Christie? ask Evans? Uh, Evans. That's yes. Yeah. Why didn't they ask Evans? That's right. Yeah. Agatha Christie novel that apparently Hugh Laurie's always loved and now he's got the opportunity to make it for Mammoth TV and Britbox. Uh, and here is question number three. It's French comedy, but on the big screen. Lizzie. Lizzie. Deep or son. Call my Call agent. My agent. Mm. For those of us who are not bilingual. Yes. It's uh, going to be terrible. Why? Terrible, oh. surely. Big, you know, when you get a fantastic program and then they put it on the films, it's never good. Remember Sex in the City. I'm, yeah. I'm heartbroken, heartbroken. Yeah. Good point. The Inbetweeners was okay, and I thought oh, Absolutely Fabulous was, was better than the more recent Absolutely Fabulous TV shows. The good news, though, forget the film. I, I, I agree with Lizzie about the film, but they're, they're going to do another series as well, which is that that is very exciting because I think we a lot, a lot of us thought they would stop it at the last series, but um, they, they are mm. going to carry on reboot it. I think, for a further series. So that's exciting. And a British version, apparently, being written by John Morton. That, W1A uh, is being touted uh, around. John Morton is a, a, I'm going to use the word genius, but he is a genius of TV comedy. And I am, that, is, that was announced years ago, by the way. I think at least two years ago, quite quietly. And we're, I'm still waiting for that to, I mean, I think it's still happening. But yeah, I can't wait for that. Well, you've won the quiz, Boyd. I, I can't give you a series of Call My Agent written oh, by John Morton, but I can give you that. That's more than enough. <laughs> That's more than more than enough honour for me. Um, and thank you to uh, all my guests today, uh, Anne Charles, Elizabeth Carr Ellis, and Boyd Hilton. Uh, we will be back in two weeks' time. So get following us on your podcatcher of choice. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you want to get a podcast. Just click follow. Uh, I've been Ollie Mann. The producers Matt Hill, Peter Price, and Sophie King. The Media Podcast is a Rethink Audio and PPM production. Until next time, bye bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.